to do what only you can do. So I always try and be honest with you when I stand up and preach here, whether it's with regards to God's Word, whether it's with regards to just reality in the world around us. And so here's another opportunity for me to be honest with you. I didn't want to preach today's sermon. And to help you understand why, I'm going to illustrate that with this box of ultramal custard. Now, I'm not going to ask you to show your hands, but who here doesn't like ultramal custard? I mean, what's there not to like? It goes with everything, right? It goes with jelly. It goes with trifle. It goes with steak. It goes with literally, absolutely everything. And I know... You have done what I'm about to do because when you get to the end of the box, do you just take this box and throw it away? No! You pull out the tabs at the bottom and you're doing this. How do we get the last bits of this custard out of the custard box? All right. And so the reason why I didn't want to preach today's sermon is because I think so many of us, when it comes to our budgets, when it comes to our finances, when it comes to rising food and fuel prices, when it comes to our kids' feet that never stop growing, when it comes to school fees, so many of us feel like that final box of ultra-malt custard and we're squeezing every last drop out of it. And when we're in that place, and another demand is placed on us, whether big or small, real or perceived, in that place of pressure, we just feel like, I love, I think it's the millennials that kind of came up with this phrase when they say, I can't even. <laughs> I can't even. And so I know that for so many of us, when we come to God's Word and we're going to speak about money, we already feel like that ultra-mill box. We've already been squeezing it for everything it's worth. And now I feel extra burdened and extra guilty and I can't even. So we've been doing a series called Sowing Seeds. And the whole idea behind the series is that I don't know what this year is going to hold for you, but are there seeds we can sow at the beginning of this year that will produce life during the course of this year? Because a seed is life potential. And so we've been talking about sowing seeds of peace, sowing seeds of just uh, moving towards Jesus in our lives, sowing seeds of the gospel in other people's lives. And so one of the things that I always try and do when we start a series is just try get everything together with regards to what does the Bible have to say about these things. And so I did a, a word search with the Bible software, and you guys can do it with a place like Bible Hub online, and you type in the words like sow, seeds, planting, reaping, and just as you do that, I get all these Bible passages, and, and Lord, now guide me. What passage are we going to speak on this week, and what are you wanting to say to your church this week? And if you do that kind of exercise, there are a whole bunch of passages come up, but there are two big clusters. The one cluster is from Matthew 13, the parable of the sower, right? And the four soils. And so two weeks ago, we spoke about that passage. 
The other big cluster comes from a passage that we're going to deal with today, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. But here's me just being honest with you. The problem was it's all about money. And so I'm like, okay, Lord, we won't talk about that one. And so week on week, and I do believe that the Lord's been good to us and He's been speaking to us as a church and we've been talking about sowing seeds of life in many different ways and God has been in that. I got to this week and I'm like, okay, Lord, what do you have for your church this week? Let me go back to my notes. Let me go back to my research. Let me go back to some of these biblical passages. Oh, wow, you know, there's this passage in 2 Corinthians 9 that talks about sowing and reaping, but we already decided we're not doing that. And so, have you got anything else for us, God? Oh, but what about this passage in 2 Corinthians 9? No, no, we're not doing that passage. Because everyone feels like an ultramel box of custard. Until eventually I felt God just tap me on the shoulder and say, it is not for you to filter my word. And as a church, we have tried to be so integrous when it comes to this. If there are hairy topics, let us have the courage to go in. If there are things going on in the culture around us, let's be gracious and also let's be courageous with the truth. Where there is confusion, let's allow God's word to bring clarity. And so I just felt God saying in this particular case, now trust me with my word and let me do work in people's hearts. So that's where we are today. And so I'm going to ask you if you have your Bibles here, turn with me to 2 Corinthians 9. Verses 6 to 15, we will have the words on the screen behind me, but whether you're underlining on your tablet or your phone or in your real Bible, it's always wonderful to kind of get comfortable with the Bible in our own hands as well. And so there are different ways to build a sermon. There are different ways to synthesize different texts as they come together and speak about something that God wants to speak to us about. But what we're going to do today is while we have quoted this passage before here at Riverside, we've never really walked through it. And so we're going to allow God's Word to do the heavy lifting for us this morning, and we are going to walk step by step, verse by verse, through this passage and trust that wherever you are at, and however comfortable or uncomfortable you're feeling right now, whatever fears you may have, that God Himself, is the one who meets you through His Word and by His Spirit this morning. So let's read together, starting with verse 6. Where Paul writes, he's writing to a church and he says, Remember remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Now if this was the only verse that we pulled out of Scripture and stuck on the back of our cars on the bumper sticker or stuck on our fridge, this verse can be made to mean what many people like me, in other words, pastors, try and make mean. And that is this, guys, if you want the good life, all you need to do is give. And then we quote this verse, because God says, if you sow sparingly, you're only going to reap sparingly. In other words, we try and motivate this mindset of you give to get the best investment in the world. But if we're going to be responsible with God's Word and with what God, what God is calling us to, I want to encourage you that as we look at words like reap and sow, generously and sparingly, let's allow this whole passage 
to shape our expectations and therefore to disciple us, meaning to convict us and challenge us to a response of faith. So let's continue through this passage. Verse 7, where Paul writes, Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now there's a whole sermon in this verse, but I see three important things here. The first is a decision. The second is a conviction. And the third is a satisfaction. A decision, a conviction, and a satisfaction. First of all, Paul, Paul is assuming that as we bring our finances before the Lord, that we are going to make an informed decision. So how do we make a proper decision? Let me maybe preempt that with a different question. What happens when we don't make a decision? What happens when we push the decision off? What happens when you don't want to face up to the decision? We don't want to spend the time necessary to make a good decision on anything. We know the answer to that question. One of two things happens. Either we stay with the flow, we stay in our rut, we go with the easiest route out, or we're hit with the crisis of the decision and we so often make poor decisions because we haven't processed, processed it properly. And so if we are to make a decision before the Lord, how do we do that? And this ought to be true for all of us in all aspects of our lives. And so in, in no particular order, if you are to make a good decision, at some level, you're going to do some a SWOT analysis, uh, strengths and weaknesses and benefits. And of course, in the kingdom of God, some of the worldly values are opposed to some of the kingdom values. But nonetheless, we're going to try and, you know, wrap our minds around that. And some of you even do it on paper or, you know, in a Word document or an Excel spreadsheet. Also, if you want to make a good decision, I hope that you're going to look to those who have great experience and seek their wisdom and so if, if, you, if you're wanting to make a decision around marriage, hopefully you're going to look at those that seem to be doing marriage well. And you're going to have a cup of coffee with them and you're going to hear them out so that their wisdom and experience can inform your decision making. I also hope that we're going to pray about our decisions. And again, not, not simply God bless my decision, but let me engage a process whereby I am moved through prayer onto your agenda. Seek first the kingdom of God. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And so in prayer, I'm seeking the Lord's face. I'm also open to Him to move my heart onto His agenda rather than me move His heart onto my agenda. We do that in prayer. I also hope that we're also going to come to God's Word. And we're going to say, Lord, you know, in prayer, I can be so subjective. I can be so influenced by what I want. But what does your word clearly say about marriage? What does your word clearly say about work? What does your word clearly say, in this case, about finances? And maybe there's a few more things that we can do. But if we are to make a quality decision, seeking the wisdom of God, we're going to kind of do most of those things. And so Paul is assuming there is a decision. Secondly, that leads to a conviction. It's a personal conviction now. This is between you and God. 
You're not doing something because some pastor was screaming at you on Sunday. You're not kind of responding with your finances out of guilt or resentment to God, to the church, to some pastor, or whatever the case might be. Because you've brought yourself to the Lord, you've allowed Him to speak to your heart, you've sought His wisdom, you've made a decision, and now it's your conviction, and that can lead to a satisfaction. But God doesn't want us to be coerced. He wants us to, once we've gone through that entire process, to feel joy and obedience to Him. And that is what God wants for us, not from us. Now, a couple of questions may come out of this for you. And the one is, and, and, and depending on where you're at, the questions may be different. But the one is, Stephen, this seems kind of vague. I mean, you're talking about like me making a decision in my heart. What if I go, okay, if that's the way it is. I'm going to bring my heart before the Lord. And I felt like God told me 10 rand a month. That's all it needs to be. It's between me and God, right? And so don't we need some rules? Don't we need some guidelines to help us here? No, aren't we shooting ourselves in the foot by letting it up to God and people to make their own decisions on this? Aren't we risking here? Another related question, and especially if you've been in church for some time, you may say, well, but Stephen, I thought there was a rule. I thought there was a guideline. What about the tithe? You know, the 10% rule. Shouldn't we be talking about that rule and just trying to get everybody to obey that rule? And the third question that may be bouncing around you is, well, you know, I have prayed about this. I am, I think, obeying in obedience, but I ain't got no joy. You know, I, I, if I'm honest, I'd rather use that money for a new car. I'd rather use that money for a better holiday. And so, yes, I do have a bit of resentment and bitterness when it comes to my obedience in this area. And so as we bring all of these questions together, you know, the Scriptures do talk about the tithe, especially in the Old Testament. And it's a bit of a complicated system, but at its most basic level, it's bringing 10% of what the Lord has given you back to Him, and that's kind of used for the work of the temple, the work of the priests and the Levites because they weren't allowed to own land and therefore they couldn't grow their own food. And in a sense, they couldn't earn their own salaries. What to look after the poor and so on and so forth. And so the tithe allowed for that. But now we're in the New Testament and the word tithe comes up once. Matthew 23, Jesus is in fact mocking the Pharisees because they are obeying the tithe legalistically, but their hearts are far from the heart of God. So he says, you know, you guys, you count your mint leaves. Okay, I've got 40 mint leaves. I'm going to cut off four mint leaves. I've satisfied my righteousness before God. And then Jesus says, but the problem is you walk past real needs, real issues of mercy. And you think you're standing right before God because you've given your four mint leaves while ignoring real needs of mercy and justice around you, he says you should have done the latter while still doing the former. And I think what's going on here, which is kind of very consistent with the way Jesus always treats the law of the Old Testament and his New Testament application, is he moves it from a law to the heart. So, so many of you would know that this is true of adultery. Jesus says, okay, fine, you haven't physically slept with another man's wife and you think you're righteous before God. The problem is you've dreamt about it every night for the past two years. 
And if they had an internet back then, we would have gone online and fantasized about it. He says, if you do it in your heart, you're as guilty as if you did it in the flesh. And in the same way, God is saying, don't like the Pharisees. There's a line in the sand and you're reluctant, you're bitter about it. Oh, but now I'm right before God because I'm obeying this rule, but my heart is far from his heart. Get the heart right. Allow God to minister to your heart. Be transformed by the kingdom of God in your heart. And then let's see what that looks like in real life. That is so similar to what I believe even in the Old Testament we see in the building of the tabernacle. Exodus 25 verses 2, God says this to Moses, Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. Lord, wouldn't it have been easier just to say, okay, each family, if you're kind of in this whole wealth bracket, bring a, you know, a bunch of gold. And if you're in this bracket, bring some silver. And if you're in this bracket, bring some bronze and, you know, some rules to obey. Isn't that cleaner? No, no, no. Let's allow the Lord to move people's hearts. Do you know what happened in that story? The people were so overwhelmed by generosity. Ex-slaves that never owned land were so generous that eventually Moses said, guys, time out. We've got everything we need. I fundamentally believe that we, if we truly, truly bring our hearts before God together and we allow God to minister to our hearts in all aspects of our lives, including our finances, God will always ensure that we have more than enough. And we will see that as we continue reading these verses. So now reading from verse 8, which says, And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. To which some of you say, well, Stephen, now I know the Bible is not true because I haven't been blessed abundantly. I don't have all that I need. I don't have more than I need. At which point I wanted to remind you that while there's so much great value for us to come before God in our closets, meaning in the quiet place, me and the Lord and Him speaking to my heart, this is written to a church. And God is speaking to a whole church. And God is saying, I am for you and I want you to be able to fulfill everything that I called you to do as a church. And so I have blessed you, church, with what you, church, need. It reminds me of the Lord's Prayer, which uh, we all know that line, I think the line we pray the most, Lord, give me today my daily bread. Is that what it says? What does it say? Give us today our daily bread. And in our individualistic society, we are so quick to apply what is intended for God's corporate blessing to my personal life. And so I believe that sometimes the much that God has given to the one who has more than they need is the answer to the prayer of the one who has less than they need. Does that make sense? That is why the next verse says, and it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor who do not have all that they need, but their righteousness endures forever. In fact, this is exactly what's going on here. If you read the beginning of this chapter and the prior chapter, chapter 8, 
we find out that while Paul is trying to motivate generosity in this church, the church of Corinth, he talks to them about a church, the church of Jerusalem, that has really gone through a tough time and they don't have all that they need. So Paul's trying to motivate generosity. Now, when you're trying to stretch people and when you're trying to grow something in someone, there's a number of ways of doing that. And of course, teaching is one of them. Do you know, a number of years ago, uh, we as a family bought our kids and, and actually for us uh, a table tennis table. And uh, I'm kind of like okay to good when it comes to table tennis, especially when my kids were kind of eight and 10 respectively. And so what is the best way for me to grow their confidence and their skills in table tennis? For me to just smash them and show them how good I am? No, they'll never play table tennis again. So what do you do? You kind of like match them at their level of talent and you, you, you lob it back at them and you try to give them a few easy shots and you try to get their eye in and you try to grow their own confidence. And every now and again, I smash it just to show them that I'm dead, right? But as they grow in skill and as they, you know, and you're always just one, just one step ahead of them, just stretching them to the point where now my kids are really, honestly, keeping me on my toes. And so Paul uses that methodology when it comes to growing generosity in this church because he says, okay, listen, Corinthian church, here's what I want for you, but there's another church. And I want to tell you about their generosity and I want to see if you can match their generosity. Oh, but the difference is they gave out of their poverty. In fact, they gave all they can. In fact, they gave more than they were able to give. And so, Corinthian church, whose God has given so much, look at them as an example. And let's see what that looks like in your own place as well. And so when God says, I've given you everything you need, he's speaking to his church. And he's saying, I have a task and a responsibility for each of my churches and I want to ensure they're resourced. And this is how I intend to resource them for every good work. All right, so, so let's read on if you're not uncomfortable enough. Now he who supplies seed to the sower, verse 10 and 11, and bread for food will also supply and increase, oh, we love that, your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. First and foremost, now he who supplies. The biblical idea of possessions is that we are stewards. The best equivalent is like a financial manager where someone says, here's my investment. I'm asking you to manage and grow my investment, but it's not their money. But they are employing the best of their skill, all right, to partner with something that is not theirs. So when it comes to our possessions, that is the biblical worldview to which some of you may immediately push back. No, 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 Stephen. I didn't wake up one day and there was millions in my bank accounts. I had to work hard. I had to sacrifice. When other people were lazy, I was studying. When other people were partying, I was working. I was working six day weeks. I was working 15 hour days. You know, my parents are the ones who ensured that I have 
what I have today. That's got nothing to do with God, to which the Scriptures would respond, but who gave you those abilities? Who gave you the breath in your lungs? Who gave you those parents? Who gave you those opportunities? And so the biblical worldview starts off with, it is God who gives. And so as we read this verse, it's He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, and He will also supply and increase your store of food. Again, we love that verse. Which again, we read so wrongly. We start to go, oh, you know, I've been kind of faithful with what God has given me. He has now increased my seed as a, as a bonus, as a reward. And so all the seed that God has given me is mine. And it's a big pat on the back from God. But if we look at this verse, what is the point of seed? This verse says that the point is seed for sowing or making bread for food. In other words, seed is never meant to be stored up in barns. Not saying that we don't invest wisely. Not saying that we don't think about the future of our family if we are able to. Riverside, we've tried to be very clear on this. We don't want to preach the prosperity gospel, meaning you give to get. Neither do we preach the prosperity gospel, that if you're poor, somehow you're morally superior to the rich. If anything, if you're poor, you have a unique set of challenges, and if you're rich, you have a different set of challenges. And God is calling all of us to not put our hope in wealth, not to be greedy and to trust Him. Every single one of us. And so our understanding is if that God is wanting churches to do these good works. And guys, as Riverside, man, this keeps me awake at night. The good works that God has for us to do. And this is always my prayer that God would supply our needs, but the way He does it is by supplying seed which gets sown and then more seed is given to be sown and more seed is given to be sown. As we enable ministry and as we are motivated by what God is doing among us, well, let's continue. And this is the final few verses we're going to briefly look at as we start wrapping up here. From verse 12, where Paul says, The service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but it is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ, and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because, at their surpass, sorry, because of the surpassing grace that God has given you. Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift, the ultimate generous one. And so just, just, just briefly, and I know we're skimming the surface here, but when we respond to the Lord in this with generosity, we see here in these verses, it is a service to God and a service to others. We also see in this verse that our generosity, as we've already shown, provides the needs of people and ministry. In verse 3, we see that Paul's assumption is, sorry, in verse 13, that this should 
naturally accompany our confession of faith. And finally, in verse 4, we see that this is something that brings about a net increase in the praise of God. In other words, when we sow, when we provide for the needs of God's people, when we provide for the needs of ministry, when we recognize that God is the good gift to us and He models that for us, when our hearts are changed and transformed, the Bible here in these verses talks about a harvest of righteousness. And I fundamentally believe that can God bless you financially? Yes, He can. But I don't believe that's the focus of this passage. The ultimate blessing that should motivate us is the harvest of righteousness, which is many giving praise to God because God's grace has been sown out. Ministry has been enabled. The gospel has gone out. Riverside has gone to Botswana. The poor have received the blessing of the kingdom of God. We have seen people's needs met. We have enabled people who have been called into full-time ministry to give their time to God to serve in a unique way. And because of all of that, we see a harvest of righteousness. And so as we try and get practical, recognizing once again, that as I kind of poured out that box of ultra milk custard, we're all somewhere on the spectrum of the full box to the box that is being so tightly squeezed looking for one more milliliter of custard. And if anything, probably most of us are towards that side of things. But if we get really practical, I think the first thing we need to think about here is that God wants to supply our need. God is not up there like this tight-fisted mythological God saying, if you, then I will. If you're good enough and if you pray hard enough, then maybe I'll see what spare change I've got. Rather, we have a God through these verses and so many others who is saying, I want to supply your need. I want to supply the seed that you need for every good work for your church to satisfy its full redemptive potential. But the way I do it is through people. I don't just make up money in bank accounts. But we have a God that we don't come bowing to and scraping to. We have a God who wants to supply our need. Number two, I want to encourage you that wherever you are at, to make a prayerful decision. And if I'm honest with you, it becomes a challenge of trust. Do I trust God? Do I really trust God? The one who knows the situation that I'm in. Aren't we afraid that that's, if I can't bring my heart before God, He's going to ask me to sacrifice to such a level that I'm going to make my family destitute. And so I'm not going to even bring my heart before God. Do we trust Him? And I want to encourage you to make a prayerful decision. In a couple of weeks' time, we're going to present our church finances. And, uh, uh, you know, that's always helpful to see. And we always want to engender trust of the leadership here at Riverside. But when it comes to our stewardship, there's kind of two approaches. 
And the one is, okay, what's the church's budgets? Do I like the leaders? Did I like last week's sermon? Right? Okay, and then uh, what's their need? What's their shortfall? Okay, let me see what I've got left and see if I can help out. Or what God is trying to engender in our own hearts here, let me come before the Lord and whether it's with my abundance or whether like the widow that Jesus honors, I've, I've just got spare change and I'm just coming to use another parable. I'm just coming with my fishes and loaves. This, this is all I've got. But Lord, speak to me. Speak to my heart. Let me engage in a decision of wisdom where I allow you, God, who loves me and who fathers me and who is for me and who is for his kingdom. And so how do I love you and how do I obey you? I just want to discern here between guilt and discernment. And again, this is true when it comes to all parts of our lives of discipleship. That I think it's just part of our sinful nature and our sinful world and sinful leaders and sinful structures whereby often our first impulse when it comes to stuff we don't like is so often guilt. And doesn't it paralyze you I don't want anyone in this room, and I am 100% convinced God doesn't want anyone in this room to make a decision based on guilt. Because that is from our broken hearts or it's from the enemy himself. But does the Lord sometimes convict us? Can that sometimes feel uncomfortable? And we need to discern the difference. The word that helps me when it comes to discerning the difference between guilt and conviction, is with conviction, there's always an invitation. With guilt, it's condemnation. If you don't, or else. Whereas conviction, oh, this is uncomfortable. Oh, but I feel the Lord calling me to His kingdom, to the vision that He has for me. And so I'm being invited to partner with him. So learn to discern the difference between guilt and conviction in all areas of your life, including this area. And thirdly, they talk about growing in joy. I never enjoy paying bills. And if that's all we see this is, we will never have the joy that God wants for us, the satisfaction. And so can we grow joy in our hearts? Well, I fundamentally believe we can. So here's a few basic thoughts. Number one, thank God for what he has entrusted to you. Uh, but, but Stephen, you know, that guy, he can thank God because he's, you know, he's, he's been blessed abundantly. I, I've got so little, I'm, I'm already struggling. Uh, I don't know how to thank God for this. And I believe one of the first ways our heart has changed is to be grateful for even what he has entrusted us with. You know, the Bible talks about being thankful at all times. Some of you may know um, just the wonderful person, Corrie ten Brun, who was a prisoner of war in the Nazi prison camps. And uh, she was a survivor and, and a person of faith, of great faith. And so her and her sister were in these Nazi prison camps and they were really challenged by that verse to be thankful at all times for all things. 
And so they would kind of go through this kind of laundry list of things they could be thankful for. But Corrie ten Boom, there was one point that she said, I refuse to give God thanks for the fleas in my prison cell. And so, no. But her sister, her name was Bessie, said, but isn't the word saying something different? And so Corrie ten Boom got to the point where she said, okay, Lord, okay, I'm thankful for the fleas. You know, after their whole experience, they found out that these particular areas of their detention were avoided by the security and the soldiers who, as so often happens in times of war and prison of war camps, where women are just treated as just sexual objects and are raped and just abused. And it was because of the fleas that the security guards never came to their cells. And so listen, uh, this is a challenge to me as much as it's a challenge to you. But if Corrie ten Boom can give thanks to the Lord for the fleece, we can give thanks to the Lord for our current circumstances. So that's number one. Number two, pray when you give. Please don't let this simply be, okay, there's my bond, there's my electricity, there's, you know, the grocery bill, and there's the church bill, and there's some missions. Okay, done. Don't let this simply be something that goes on your cycle, debit order, and there's nothing wrong with doing that. But I want to encourage you, when you give, oh Lord, thank you for what you have given me. And whether this is a large or a small gift, I'm sowing a seed. And Riverside, just help me remember, this is life potential. doesn't matter how big the seed is. And maybe it's just a mustard seed and that's all I can sow. But God, take the seed, and do what you can do. Thank you, Lord, and thank you for your goodness. Thank you that you are for us. And so pray when you give. Number three, pray for the harvest, the true harvest, the harvest of righteousness, the harvest of many giving thanks to God the result of more and more people encountering the goodness and the grace of God. So pray for that harvest. Once again, whether you're sowing in abundance or all you can do is that mustard seed of sowing. Lord, I trust you. And I want to see this transformed into a great harvest. You see how this is moving your heart from what I can get to seek first the kingdom of God. And then number four, celebrate the harvest. Oh, when we hear the, the Botswana missions trip come back, when we hear, and even in something as, in inverted commas, as boring as a financial report, we hear about the families whose needs have been met. We hear about the work of the community. We hear about branch out. We hear about leaders we're raising up and we're partnering, we're partnering with as God has a calling on their lives. We celebrate the true harvests. And I guarantee you that if you do that, you will grow in joy the joy of the good God who loves us. And so I want to encourage us as we, as we go and pray now that whether we're feeling like the full ultramel box of custard or the empty ultramel box of custard, God knows that. I promise you, He knows that. But if regardless, we come before God in an act of trust, 
and say, Lord, with all of my life, with my marriage, with my kids, with my time, with my worship, with my praise, with my devotion, with my talents, with my time, with my treasures. Lord, give me a heart that seeks your kingdom. Give me a heart that says, Lord, I'm so moved by your kingship, by your reality amongst us. My heart is saying, Lord, use me in every which way so that I can rightly manage what you have entrusted with me, whether it's the breath in my lungs or the seed that God has given to me. And I believe once that is our heart, God will be good to us. By that, I don't simply mean He will provide the seed that we need, which I most certainly include. But because He is good to us, because He is good to you, He will be good in how He meets you in your space. Because He's a good Father. And even when you ask for the wrong things, because he's a good father, Luke 11, he gives us good things. But it's for us to realize that that's who he is, even in this part of my life. And so I'm going to pray for us. God, I thank you. You are a good father. You are the one who owns the cattle on thousand hills. You are, as we sang so wonderfully this morning, you are the God of creation. You have no need of us, but you do love us and you have invested yourself in us and you are inviting us to partner with you in your kingdom. For our sake, God, I thank you that you're the God who doesn't call us to somehow work our way to you, but you came to us as an act of, as just this previous chapter in 2 Corinthians, an act of your generosity to us. That he who was rich became poor so that we through his poverty may become rich. That is who you are, God. You are the good father that even when you ask the wrong things, you give us good things. But we don't always see you that way. And for some of us, it's fear. And Lord, I understand our times. And maybe some of us are like the Corinthian church with an abundance. And some of us are like the Macedonian church with, with poverty. But God, we seek to trust you. We choose to trust you and your goodness. And Father, we don't want to be ruled by fear. Equally, we don't want to be ruled by just how so many things can hold the place of God in our lives. We don't want our finances and our possessions to be Pharaoh in our lives, to rule us. But rather, rather God, we recognize that you have entrusted things to us. And so God, we come to you dethroning mammon, dethroning wealth. And God, I know for so many of us, for different reasons, our hearts are fighting right now. So God, would you extend your grace? Would you extend that invitation? Would you extend the vision of your kingdom? Would you be kind to every family and every person here, knowing our fears, knowing our struggles? Set us free, God. Move in our hearts. 
God, we want to see the good things you have in store for us as a church. We trust you. Father, I know that uh, we are in a time of just global scarcity. And for those of us for whom I can't even hear today's message because of my scarcity, God, I pray sovereignly you'd be good to those people. Whether it's moving us as a church or people that they know to be able to take some of their seed and supply these people's needs. Whether it's just the breakthrough when it comes to that job, that application, that raise, that opportunity. God, I pray that you would be moving among us in this way because you are the God who gives seed to the sower. Now, I don't know what that looks like, but would you meet us as Riverside Community Church at our point of need? And would you help us be the kind of church that sows? The kind of church that through our obedience, many give praise to God, including those sitting here today or those online. 